take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 14 this morning as we uh, get into our study in this book. And we're going to be talking about angels and their relationship to Jesus Christ. All right, I'd like to read this for us, uh, beginning at verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, and you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, would you instruct us? Would you show us what it is that we need to know about Jesus, about his relationship to angels, and about this word and how it applies for us today? And Father, help us to hear and to obey what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, several years ago, there was a renewed interest in our culture in angels, and that really continues to this day. I mean, if you think back a number of years ago, there were television shows that came out like Touched by an Angel. There were movies like Angels in the Outfield or City of Angels. And you can find in different places, you know, shops that were selling books about angels, pictures of angels, little statues of angels, all of those things. But unfortunately, not all of what we saw and heard was accurate or good. For example, I had a family that uh, came to me and they had purchased a book about angels in a bookstore. You know, it looked kind of cute and innocent, you know, and this wasn't a Christian bookstore. I will give that disclaimer. But they came to me and after they had started looking at it, they were shocked by what it was about. And they brought it in to me to show me. And here it was, this book about angels was uh, telling you how you could talk to your angel and how they could be your spirit guide. And then this book also came with a, a set of cards that your angel could use to help show you the future. Well, you know, spirit guides, that's not angels, those are demons. I mean, that's what this was about. It was an occultic practice, and the cards that were along with this book were not innocent cards, they were tarot cards. I mean, it was packaged under this kind of new age spirituality as though it's good and innocent, 
And yet, it is not biblical. It is demonic. But it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, Satan would try to do that. We know in the Scripture that Satan himself even masquerades as an angel of light. So we need to check everything that we see and hear by the Scriptures. And that's what we're going to do today. So, what does the Bible tell us about angels? It's a very interesting subject, and there's a lot in the Scripture. The Bible tells us that angels are awesome creatures, but that is what they are. They are created by God. They are creatures just like we are. They are mentioned over a hundred times in the Old Testament and over 160 times in the New Testament. Now, that should tell you that their activity is, you know, pretty wide-ranging. They are involved in what is going on on earth. They are too numerous to count. In Revelation 5.11, John saw this uh, picture of the, the people gathered around the throne and all of the angels that were there, and he just said they numbered thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. He just couldn't count it. In most cases, angels are invisible to us, but in some cases, God has allowed them to be seen. We find examples of that in Scripture as well as in church history. But in Scripture, we see places like Numbers 22, 31, the story where Balaam was actually hired to curse the children of Israel, and God sent an angel that stood in his path to prevent him. In 2 Kings 6, there was a time when Elijah the prophet and his servant were uh, sleeping in this cave, and it was a time when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, and uh, Elijah's servant gets up in the morning, you know, kind of gets out and stretches a little bit and looks out and he sees the army of the Syrians there in front of him and he's panicking. He's like, Elijah, what should we do? And Elijah says, don't worry, because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he prayed that God would open his servant's eyes. And when he did, he saw that all around them were the angels and chariots of fire. Or we see in Acts chapter 12, there was a time when Peter had been arrested, was in prison, and God sent an angel in the middle of the night to rouse him and release him. He rescued him from prison. When visible, angels most often appear as men. That's why in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, it'll say that some have entertained angels unaware. That there are times when believers have you know, entertained or welcomed someone that they did not know, and here it was literally an angel. At other times, they have shone with glorious light, and those who have seen them are terrified. Uh, You can think of the birth of Christ when the angels announced that news to the shepherds, and they were terrified by the sight they saw. And that's, that's why one of the most frequent commands in Scripture is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, if we saw them in all of their glory, it would be terrifying to us. But angels have four primary functions. Number one, angels worship God continuously. We see pictures of that in Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, where they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They worship him continually. Angels are God's messengers. In Hebrew, the word malak, and in Greek, the word angelos. Both of those mean messenger. That's where we get the word angel from. 
And angels were involved, we read in Scripture, in giving the law, in announcing the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, They were there to reveal God's plan for the future to Daniel and also to John in the book of Revelation. And so we see their activity at many times. Angels also minister to believers. They rejoice at the conversion of one sinner. They celebrate that new birth. They watch over our lives to guard and protect us. They carry believers away at death and bring us into the presence of God. They are even present in our worship services. You know, I I think about that. For example, if this morning when you were coming to church, uh, God had allowed you to see the two angels standing out there at the entrance, you know, if there were two or something, you'd probably be terrified and wouldn't want to walk in here. We'd be going, you know, that's, that's amazing. Did you see that? You know, and it would be overwhelming to us in many ways. And yet he tells us that they are present whenever we assemble to worship. Angels are also God's agents of judgment and wrath. In Isaiah 37, 36, there's a story of when the armies of Assyria had come up against Jerusalem. And they surrounded them. And it looked like this is going to be in the end. And if it had been the end of Jerusalem and Hezekiah, it would have been the end of the line of Christ. And it would have cut off the line of the Messiah. I mean, here it was. Israel was facing this threatening point. And the commander of those armies taunted the living God and said, which other God has rescued any of the other peoples that we've come against? There's no one more powerful than our God. And Hezekiah prayed, and Isaiah prayed, and God answered. And that night he sent out one angel who slew an army of 185,000 men. In the last days, angels will call forth um, the elect with a loud trumpet at the coming of Christ. They will separate the believers from the unbelievers like a farmer separates his wheat from the chaff. They will open the seals. They will blow the trumpets. They will pour out the bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. And all of this to say that angels are awesome beings, but they aren't even close to the greatness of Jesus Christ. They are amazing. And yet Jesus is so much greater still. So why does the writer of Hebrews talk about them here? It is because At that time, there were some who believed that angels were greater than Jesus. You know, Jesus was this man who had lived among them and walked the earth. And even though there were those who believed that he was the Messiah, there were those who were thinking that Michael, the archangel, would actually be greater than Jesus. That Jesus would be this earthly Messiah and that Michael the archangel would reign over him and that that's the hierarchy in the kingdom that was to come. And those errors needed to be corrected. You see, the temptation that Hebrews addresses is the temptation to make Jesus less than he is. 
Now let me say that again because if there's only one thing you take away from this message, this is a very important point. The temptation that Hebrews addresses is the temptation to make Jesus less than he is. That's why I love to study this particular book because of all that it says about Jesus. You see, people still do that today, don't they? I mean, there are people who will say things like, Jesus is a good man, Jesus is a prophet, Uh, Jesus is a religious leader, he had some good things to say, I like Jesus, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. And I certainly don't believe that he's the only way to God. You know, he's just one among many ways. And they will say things like that. And what we are going to see is that the book of Hebrews will counter every argument. And it will show us that Jesus is Lord. He is God. He's the only way to the Father. So let's take a look at what the writer of Scripture says here. He tells us that Christ is superior to the angels, and he's going to show that in a number of ways. When the writer of Scripture uses the word superior, it actually um, is used in this book 13 out of the 19 times that we find it in the New Testament. And the word superior is often translated as better. Now, I didn't put all of this up on the screen, but... If you think about that, um, you know, instead of saying Jesus is superior to the angels, he could have said or it could have been translated, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law and the covenants. He's better than the temple. In fact, what we're going to see in these usage in Hebrews as we work through this book is that in Christ we have a better hope, we have a better covenant, We have better promises. We have better sacrifices. We have better and more lasting possessions. We have a better country that we are headed toward. And we have a better resurrection to eternal life. Life that will last forever. And that's just giving you a few of the examples. But that's what we're going to see, how Jesus is superior in all of these ways. And because he is superior, all of these things that we have in Christ are better. Better than anything that they knew under the old covenant. In this particular passage, the writer uses seven Old Testament quotes to show why Jesus is superior to the angels. Number one, he tells us that Christ has a superior name. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. He said, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The name that he has is superior to theirs. In the Bible, the name of a person was very significant. The name represents all that that person is and does it's really their character or what they stand for it was significant and I think about that how you know when we name our children uh, sometimes we use traditions like we name our children after a father or a grandfather or a mother or a grandmother but there are times when in our country in our culture sometimes we just pick a name because it's kind of trendy or it's you know fashionable it's back in vogue where it kind of fallen out of use for a while and it comes back in but in scripture and especially concerning 
the name of God, those names are all significant. So what is the name that Christ has that is superior to the angels? What's that superior name? I mean, there, there are so many names for God that no one name could encompass all that he is. And you can think about some of those names that Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's called the Faithful and True. He's called Redeemer, Friend, Lord, Bread of Life. Uh, as he, uh, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. I mean, which name is it that's superior to that of the angels? If you had asked me that question before, I had studied Hebrews many years ago, I probably would have said it's the name Jesus. I think you can make an argument from that. Uh, from Philippians 2, for example, the name that's above every other name, the name of Jesus. I mean, it means Savior. That's a name that is precious to us. He is our Savior. But in this passage, the name that is emphasized here is the name Son. It's the name Son, capital S. And that's why he quotes two of these verses from the Old Testament. He said, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son? Today I have become your Father. Or again, I will be his Father, and he will be my Son. You see, the angels in some places are called sons of God, but it's a small s. In the same way that we are called into God's family and we are sons and daughters of God, small s. But Jesus, Jesus is that unique, one and only Son of God, capital S. He's the eternal Son of God without beginning or end. And when we use that word Son of God, that doesn't mean that he is less than God the Father, not at all. The Bible teaches us that the God that we worship and serve is one God who exists in three distinct persons. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal in their attributes. They are of the same essence. Jesus will even say about himself that I and the Father are one of the same essence. So when the Scripture says, today I have become your Father, what does that mean? Well, it says it in that way because the eternal Son of God experienced unique dimensions in his sonship when he became a man. That in that role as the Son of God, when he chose to come to earth for us and take on human flesh, he experienced unique, again, aspects in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection and in his ascension. He lived the way that we should live, in dependence upon the Father. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. I mean, in all of these things, he lived as a son dependent upon his Father. Exactly how we should live. And what's interesting about that, too, is William Lane, the commentator, even points out that in biblical times, the birthday of a king is the day he ascends to the throne. And so even in this statement, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the Father is saying, you are my son, today I become your father. 
Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. You can think too of the statements that were recorded in the Gospels at Jesus' baptism when God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Before Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel said to Mary that this child that was to be born would be called the Son of the Most High. And to Joseph, the angel came and said that you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. God saves. But he also went on to say that they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God in human flesh. He is the unique Son of God and no one else, none of the angels can make that claim. Secondly, Christ has a superior nature and we see that in verses 6 to 12 and there's, there's some overlap here on the things that are said. But in that superior nature, the writer of Scripture is telling us that Jesus Christ is God. He is divine. And when God brings his firstborn into the world, he's talking about Christ's incarnation. He's talking about a nature or an actual creation of the eternal Son of God. No, he has been there from all eternity. But what he is talking about is how unique Jesus is. This one who is fully man and fully God and all the angels worship him. And that's what he says here. When he brings his firstborn into the world, he commands the angels, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says to them, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. There are stories in the Old Testament where there were times when angels came in the wind or where they ascended into heaven in the fire. Uh, they had these dramatic appearances or exits. You see, angels are creatures who receive their form and rank and assignments from God. I mean, they do His bidding. They take their directions from Him because God is their creator too. They are in the wind and the fire. They are His messengers. They carry out His will. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and one of the disciples took out his sword it was like he was going to defend Jesus you know he's going to protect him and do this and cut off the ear of one of the servants that was there and Jesus restored that man's ear and he said to the disciples put that sword away and he said do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now think about that. In the Roman army, one legion was 6,000 men. So one legion of angels would be 6,000 angels. And Jesus, you know, here is saying, I mean, I could call on 12 legions of angels at any moment, 72,000 angels. And if you think that one angel could slay 185,000 men in one night, well, you do the math. Let's see, how many would that be that he could take care of? I think he could handle this Roman guard that was coming to arrest him. But he chose not to. 
because it's why he came, to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. In verse 8, it says, but about the sons, but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. So here, the writer is quoting this psalm. It's Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, that everybody understood was referring to God, thinking of God the Father, and here, without hesitation, he is applying it to the Son, and he is calling the Son God. But about your Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. He talks about his throne, his kingdom. He talks about his righteousness, his power, his work and creation, his unchanging nature. He emphasizes all of these things in what he um, quotes here from the Old Testament. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You're going to roll them up like a robe, and like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Now think about that. In a man or woman's lifetime, how many sets of clothes do we go through? <laughs> you know, how, how many clothes do we buy and wear out or get tired of and give away? I mean, I think about the sharing shop yesterday where we had all these clothes that were brought in that we don't use. I mean, we do that many times in our lifetime. We outgrow them, styles change, you know, whatever. And we, we pass them on or we give them away or they are discarded. What he's saying here is that one day even this universe will be rolled up like a scroll and Jesus will outlast it all. That there's a day coming when this present, yeah, the sun's going to fail one day. <laughs> you know, this universe is going to wear out even and run down. And Jesus is so awesome that that day's going to come when he will roll it up like a scroll and dispose of it and he will make all things new. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He is the unchanging, eternal Son of God. And thirdly, Christ has a superior rank. He is the divine King. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You think about Jesus and the statement that was made at the end of Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. There's no one greater. The Son sits at God's right hand. The angels stand in His presence. The Son sits. He has the position of preeminence. He's the one who is served. And the angels stand in His presence to do His bidding. It is Christ who rules. It is the angels who serve. And they serve God and they serve His children. That's why the writer of Scripture says, are not all angels ministering spirits? Isn't that not their function? And they are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. 
And when it says they are sent to serve, the force of that word in Greek is that they are continually being sent out one after the other on behalf of God's children. And that's pretty amazing. They come and they go. They come and they go. They come before the Father. They are given instructions. You know, hey, today I want you to watch over Mary or I want you to stand by the bedside of this woman who is dying. The time's going to come when I want you to bring her home. Or, or God says today, you know, Rick's going to be preaching. I want you to come. I want you to stand next to him because he needs some help today. And I want you to be there and give him strength. And it's things like that that God is doing over and over and over again that we don't even see, but they are present. They are ministering on behalf of his children. That's pretty awesome. And the stories of their intervention when they have been seen are just incredible. And I'm going to share just a a few with you this morning. You know, in the history of the church, there have been many dramatic times. We see those in Scripture, but we also see those in later centuries. There's a story that John Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, shared. He was a Scottish missionary who went out in the mid to late 1800s. And he talked about a time when this young couple found themselves on this island surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. And that terror-filled night, they fell to their knees and they prayed that God would protect them. Intermittent with their prayers, the missionaries heard the cries of the savages and expected them to come through the door at any moment. But as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The couple's hearts soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. And the missionaries bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was converted. And as the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night, and he asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. And the chief replied, Who were all those men who were with you? And the missionary answered, Why, there were no men with us. There was just my wife and myself. And the chieftain began to argue with him, saying, There were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we could not attack you. There are times when God has intervened, sending his angels to protect his saints. I've read and heard some of the stories related to the Jesus film, even in our own times, where God has sent angels to protect those who were part of that team where there are stories that people were tested in dramatic ways and God intervened to spare their life and those who were watching, witnessing this, were amazed and understood that there was something different about these men and the message that they had to tell about Jesus. In 1956 in East Africa, there was an uprising there known as the Mau Mau Uprising. And a band of roving Mau Maus came to the village of Lori. They surrounded it, and they killed every inhabitant in that village, including women and children. 300 people died that night. And not more than three miles away was the Rift Valley Academy, a private school where missionary children were being educated. And immediately upon leaving the carnage of Lori, the natives came with spears and bows and arrows and clubs and torches, 
to the school with violent intentions. In the darkness, lighted torches were seen coming toward the school. And soon there was a complete ring of terrorists around the academy, cutting off all avenues of escape. Shouts and curses could be heard coming from the Maumaus. They began to advance on the school, tightening the circle, shouting louder and louder, coming closer. And then inexplicably, when they were close enough to throw spears, they stopped. And they began retreating and soon were running into the jungle. The army was called out and fortunately captured the entire band of raiders. But later at their trial, the leader was called to the witness stand. The judge questioned him and said, On this particular night, did you not kill the inhabitants of the lorry? Yes. Well, then why did you not complete the mission? Why didn't you attack the school? The leader of the Maumaus answered, We were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in the school. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords, and we became afraid and ran to hide. You know, I think about that. That was the year 1956. 1956 was the same year that Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the other missionaries were killed by the Alca or Waroni natives in Ecuador. And when that story was told by Elizabeth Elliot of what happened that night, there were also angels present there. They were in the trees around. The people could see these images of light in the trees. And those who killed these missionaries who had gone out heard singing. I mean, heard singing that was grand and glorious like the Hallelujah Chorus. And they knew that something had happened in that place that they could not understand. God was in both. And why he spares some and why he takes the life of others, we don't know. But their death was not in vain because God used their lives to spur on a great missionary movement that affected our generation as well. And in the book of Hebrews, when we come to chapter 11, we're going to see that. We're going to see that there are those who God used to, you know, put foreign armies to flight and overcome the enemy and advance. And God was mighty to save and intervene. And we're going to see in Hebrews that there were also those who were sawn in two. Those who were put to death. Those who gave their lives for the gospel. But God was present in both. And I know we'd rather be in the first half than the second half. You know, we'd like to be on the side where it's this heroic, awesome intervention. But it's God's will. And it's his kingdom. And it's his purposes that will stand. But what can we learn from something like this? Number one, we learn that we are never wholly defenseless in a hostile world. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them, no matter what the odds may look like. And even before we became a Christian, they were at work in our life. Are not angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I mean, it's future. It's even, even before you came to know Christ, God was at work in your life and my life. And those things we look back on, you know, I've had friends who've come to know Christ who said, I, 
I just, I just felt blessed. Or there were times when this could have happened or that could have happened and it didn't. And I don't know why God spared my life or why he did what he did, but God was at work. Secondly, God cares for you and me and nothing can happen to us that is outside of his sovereign will. And that's where we just have to trust him with these things, the circumstances of our life. And thirdly, angels are awesome beings, but again, there is no comparison with the Son. He is Lord. He is God and all creation will one day bow before him. Let's pray. Jesus, how awesome you are. How worthy of our praise and adoration. How worthy that we should yield and bow before you and give you our life. You're our Savior. You're our friend. You're our Lord and our God. And may we live in a way that honors and pleases you. Amen.